Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 13 and going to verse 26. This is a very challenging piece of the Bible, I find. But then a lot of the Bible is. (laughs) So, here we are. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Thank you, Hilary. Now, uh, I don't know how, uh, how up-to-date you are with world history, uh, but uh, 2011 isn't too long ago, so you probably may remember this. Uh, it was the Arab Spring. Uh, people describe it, uprising throughout the Middle East, as you had uh, movements for democracy overthrowing uh, dictatorships. You had people rising up, peaceful protests generally in their beginning, uh, to remove the dictators that had dominated their countries for so long. Now, if you've been following history, you'll realise that unfortunately, mostly negative results... Some countries saw a descent into anarchy. Libya, Syria, Yemen, absolutely devastated by civil wars, some of which are still raging today. 
Other countries moved back to re-embrace dictatorship, like Egypt, who recently voted in a referendum. Almost 90% of the people who voted in the referendum agreed to let their president stay on well belong his parliamentary uh, elected term uh, through to 2030. Uh, And so whether he steps down at that point is another matter. So you had this uprising, this claiming this freedom, and then all of a sudden it either went to anarchy or back to dictatorship. Now, I don't know if you can see the echoes uh, that arise from that situation in history uh, with the book of Galatians. Because the book of Galatians is all about freedom, isn't it? But we, in the book of Galatians, we are told that we walk a tightrope. On one side, we have a descent into lawlessness and anarchy. And on the other side, we go back to legalism. We go back and put ourselves under the dictatorship of the law. And it's a hard balance to keep. But the Christian life is lived between these two extremes. We are living by grace between lawlessness and legalism. And we walk the tightrope. And sometimes it's not an easy place to be. Uh, The existentialist philosopher, I'm sure you all know him personally, Jean-Paul Sartre, it might be a name that you know, uh, he said uh, quite famously, he said it in French, I'll give it to you in English, uh, I am condemned to be free. I am condemned. He recognised that freedom was a burden. That freedom was a challenge. And if we are going to live in this balance between lawlessness and legalism, how are we going to do it? Where do we find the freedom to live? Now, we find the answer to that in the passage that uh, Hillary read for us this morning. You'll also find a sermon outline uh, that will mostly reflect these four points. I... Uh, Number one is freedom's call. That's the one that does not exist upon your notes. Uh, But it is there and uh, you will hear those. You'll also find freedom through service, freedom through conflict and freedom through death. Now, this is really a recap, this freedom's call, because Paul throughout Galatians has been defending the gospel, the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to see if you've been paying attention. Lauren gave you a heads up to this earlier in the service. There were three big alones. What are the three big alones that Paul has been stressing? We are saved by faith alone, Christ alone, and Grace alone. So Christ alone, it is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be set right with God, that we can come out of slavery into freedom. So Paul, uh, Peter says it before the Jewish ruling council when he's on trial at one point. He says, there is no other name given by which people can be saved. No other name. There is one road, one gate, one Christ. Grace alone. It's not something that we can earn. And he's been bending over backwards to say you cannot add to a free gift and keep the freedom. As soon as you start thinking that you can earn it, you lose it. And he has been stressing that it is by grace alone and we receive it by faith alone. Faith is the only way. Simply faith is the empty hands that reach out to be filled. Faith is the acknowledgement 
that apart from Christ and his free gift, we have no hope. So faith directs us, trust, we trust in what Christ has done for us. And Paul and the other Bible writers, they talk about the gospel. And it's always, we are saved from something for something. So we are saved from death into life, from alienation into adoption, from poverty to riches, from the kingdom of darkness, this is one of my favorite, to the kingdom of the sun. And the dominant images that have been coming out in Galatians have been that we have been saved from blessing, uh, from curse to blessing and from slavery into freedom. And here, really at the back end of Galatians, Paul starts to unpack what it means to live free, what it means to live in the gospel. And he says in verse 13, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That is the gospel. We are called out of slavery into freedom. But there's this challenge. How do we do it? Because on one side, human history and our own experience, we either go one way into lawlessness or we go the other way into legalism. How do we walk that tightrope? Paul gives us the answer. And the first answer he gives us is that we get free through service. Now, let's read verse 13. He says, you brothers and sisters were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature, if you have a different translation, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Literally, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Paul here is telling them that their freedom doesn't mean anything goes. That was what the, op the opponents would have been saying. If you don't have the law, well, what restrains you? And Paul here is saying the opposite of living under the law, living under legalism, is not to live lawlessness in lawlessness. He says it's like cannibalism. If you bite and devour each other, you, will, you can imagine this church. It's a horrific image, isn't it? They're, they're just chewing on each other and eventually they're going to be down to the bones. It's a revolting image that is there. But he's saying lawlessness will see you destroyed. Lawlessness will see you destroyed. So what other option is there? Well, what does Paul say? I don't hear you gasp when I read this. I didn't hear you gasp when Hillary read it. It should shock us. And it comes across a little bit better in the original language. Let me embellish the translation to reflect that. He says, rather, serve one another as slaves. And that is what the word means. Humbly in love. Serve one another in love as slaves. Freedom is found through service as slaves. If you're familiar with Galatians, when Paul, just a chapter before, has talked about Hagar and those living under the law, 
serving as slaves, it's exactly the same word. Paul here is saying freedom is found through slavery. And then he goes on and all the way through he's been saying no to the law, hasn't he? And what's he say now? The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this commands, laws. What what are you talking about? Is Paul doing the classic bait and switch? You know, you may be familiar with peanuts and Lucy was always doing this uh, to Charlie Brown. You know, put the ball down, he comes through. Uh, Is Paul doing the same thing? He's moving the target. He's got them, he sucked them in. Then he's saying, no, 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 serve as slaves, obey the law. And a little bit further down in verse 24, he talks about belonging to Christ Jesus, being owned by Jesus. But all the way through, he's been talking freedom, 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 freedom. How does this work? We need to um, explore this. Now, last week, I introduced you to two concepts about freedom. One I called negative freedom. And this is how I think the world understands freedom. Uh, Most people get this. Uh, If you go out there, this is the dominant image. And it's it's a freedom that is like the freedom of a helium balloon when it is no longer tethered to the ground. You know, when you've been walking around the show as a little kid, maybe you had this experience and it still scarred you, probably like me, and you've got your helium balloon and you love it so much. There were these beautiful sort of glowing sort of neon ones this year that when I was there, uh, and then you've been distracted and you've let the balloon go. And what does it do? It rises uninhibited into the sky. It's free. It is no longer restrained by you holding on to its tether. That is what people see freedom as. No restraints, no rules. I can do whatever I want. That is how they understand freedom. But can I say, A, it's not the whole picture, but it doesn't work. So think about it. If you have a situation where there is no rules, you can never have an opinion about what someone else does. And our younger generation, that's the world that you live in, isn't it? One of the worst criticisms that someone can make about you, which, again, is a moral judgment that they're making on you, uh, recognise that, is that you're judgy, yes? Okay, but they're making... You see the irony in that? Okay, they're criticising you for being judgmental. What are they doing? They're being judgmental. Uh, It's quite bizarre, really. But, so... I've just demonstrated to you, hopefully, that it doesn't work. But it means that you can actually never say to anyone that what they're doing is wrong. Now, I'm going to give you a censored version of events. I read this in a book, and it said, if you are easily disturbed, stop reading here. Uh, It was a book about moral reasoning. And it uh, it presented an idea or, or a case that really blew this one out of the water. Because the only rule that someone who goes by negative freedom will accept is do no harm to others. Okay, there was a case in the States where a man advertised for someone to murder. And someone answered that ad and uh, willingly engaged in a contract. It was videoed uh, and it was purely expressed that he was in right mind and he was consenting to what was about to happen to him. The details were horrific can I say, Uh, what this person willingly put himself through and what this person 
did to him. When they finally found this person, he'd eaten uh, his victim, uh, or most thereof, over a period of about eight months. But by the do no harm, has he done any harm? No, the person wanted to be killed and eaten. That was totally his, his choice. Now, I want to ask you, if you are a no-rules kind of person, when this guy is released from jail, because they only got him on manslaughter, they couldn't get him on murder, they only got him on manslaughter, he lives in the house next to you. How do you feel about that? Do you want to say that what he did was wrong? Of course you do. Of course you do. It's gut-wrenching. You can't just have a world that has this no rules. It doesn't actually work. And not even that kind of situation, it doesn't work even on a basic level. I walk into the gym at Marion and there's uh, these kind of beautifully sculpted bodies photographed on the wall and one girl on her biceps. I couldn't find a picture on the biceps, but here it is across the back of someone's shoulders. To thine own self be true. Okay, you've heard that as a maxim for life. You've got to be true to yourself, yes? Okay, which, which self are you being true to? I had a, I had a crisis. I, I spend a reasonable amount of time at the gym because I actually think as I'm sort of getting a slightly older, I've got to fight the old bulge and I recognise family histories of heart disease, being a bit fitter, a bit healthier. So I have a desire to live a healthy life. There was half a block of chocolate in the cupboard the other day. Which self am I going to be true to? Am I going to be true to the healthy vision of life self or the indulge my love of chocolate self? (laughs) You can probably guess what I chose. We feel that conflict, don't we? And so we can't actually live in line with our own choices. It doesn't actually work. But can I say the Bible does have a picture of negative freedom. We are freed from slavery. We are freed from death. We are freed from guilt. We are freed from judgment. It's there, but it's not the whole picture. And this is what Paul presents to us in this passage. He gives us positive freedom. Now, this will stretch you a little bit. Okay, if you're taking notes, I'm going to repeat this because I think it's worth jotting down. A positive freedom is the ability to be able to fully live into the source of blessing. It is the ability to be able to fully live into the source of blessing. Okay? To plug into the thing that will give you life in the full. It is that freedom. Because we recognise, and I've used the image, you know, the fish out of water isn't free. Let me give you the positive. Have you seen dolphins in the water? Okay, they are constrained and limited by being in the water, aren't they? Isn't that oppressive and revolting for them that they are confined to the the part of the earth that is covered by water? Of course it's not. When you see them in the water, they are incredible. They are majestic. They are free to be dolphins. What about you? Where do we flourish? Where is it that we find that our humanity actually flourishes? Actually, we are truly blessed. And I'd like to suggest it's when we are loved. 
And I'm not just talking about romantic love. But when you belong in a family and your family loves one another, when you have friends who love one another, when you have husbands and wives who love one another, when we are loved, it is then that we are truly free. That is the position that we find ourselves where we flourish. If you cut people off from that, it actually dehumanizes them, doesn't it? It actually affects them. If you raise a child in a loveless environment, that child deals with those issues for the rest of their life. A stable, loving family is a foundation for ongoing blessing in life. Where are we flourishing? It's as we are loved. But love constrains, doesn't it? Remember maybe for those who are married or dating, remember when you were single, did you ever have to check with someone? Is it okay if I stay back with my friends after work? If I come home half an hour later, does it matter? Love constraints. Uh, maybe you've been gifted with a fashion sense that stretches the boundaries. And maybe you realise that your husband or your wife absolutely loathe that particular, mo- uh, that particular uh, mode of dress, that item of clothing. If you love them, will you wear it? No, you won't. You won't. And if they say to you, I love it when you wear that, of course you choose it. Love constrains us. C.S. Lewis, who many of us will know from, La- from Narnia, he wrote another book uh, called The Four Loves. And in it, he says this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable to love is to be vulnerable another uh, author by the name of Francois Sagan a French playwright she was interviewed and she was asked whether she had had the freedom that she craved and she said yes but not when I'm in love she recognized that love constrains but love is where we are truly free so if you have a view of freedom that means you cannot love like you end up like c.s lewis locked up with this withered heart it's not the full picture is it ditch that view ditch that view and embrace the bible's view not just freedom from but freedom for and paul says you find freedom as you humbly serve one another not because you must but because you can Because as you love and you are loved, there you flourish. But it's not easy, which brings us to point number three. Freedom through conflict. 
Let's read. Galatians 5 verse 16. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do, uh, not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul here, he's describing the conflict of the Christian life. He says that in Christ, we are set free from sin. Charles Wesley, one of my favorite hymns, he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Uh, My wife and I, sometimes when we stand next to each other singing hymns like this, uh, we often... um, we, we often elbow each other because if you remember the next line, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for. And we'd often sing you and elbow each other. Uh, but anyway, the blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Sin is not only dealt with in terms of its debt paid, but its power is broken. But we remain sinners. Verse 17 tells us that the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Conflict is normal in the Christian life. Let me illustrate this. I ask you a question. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to discuss with the people around you. When was World War II won? In Europe, anyway. When was World War II in Europe won? Okay, I expect exact dates, please. Uh, Talk amongst yourselves. Okay. Got any history buffs amongst us? Any history teachers? Anyone want to... Throw out when they think it was won. Sorry? 1945. I'd like to suggest that actually it was won in 1944. uh, It was actually won on this day, June 6, 1944, with the Normandy landings. So if you actually understand history, what happened then was decisive. And what then happened over the next almost year to my birthday, I was not born in 1945, but VE Day, Victory Europe, 8th of May, 1945. So over that next 11 months, the Axis forces were rolled back till you had the formal surrender on the 8th of May. But where was the battle won? It was won, I believe, at Normandy. When was the battle in the Christian life won? It was won at Calvary. It was won when Christ died for sin. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the captive free. But VE Day awaits his return. We live in a time of conflict with the victory assured. And Paul tells us, there will be conflict. And he gives us some diagnostics 
Okay, he lets us dig into it and actually work out, are we living by the spirit or by the flesh? Verse 18, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envies. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, etc., he could keep on going, couldn't he? I could pick up some other things from other parts of scripture. You could add laziness, gossiping, pride, greed. Keep on going. But his point is they're obvious. They are obvious. But he warns us in verse 21, like the doctor who sits there and looks through the microscope at the cancer growing and says... If you indulge these, if you embrace these, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He gives us tools for diagnosis. But then he goes on and gives us the other side, the picture of health. But the fruit of the spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there are no law. He lets us see symptoms of what is happening in our life. I want to focus more on the fruit of the Spirit just briefly. I want to give three things without drilling down into any of them particularly. Notice that the first one, the first, the negative images, they are the works of the sinful flesh. But this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a biological process, isn't it? And what do we know about biological processes? It's a common image in scripture. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk. You know, he is like a tree planted beside. The images of biological growth are there. And as you bear fruit, it is gradual. Because biological growth is gradual. There are some amongst us here who are still in that stage of growing taller. I don't see you week in, week out and go, oh, I reckon you've grown. I can remember once at my last church, I went away for a term and I came back and I reckon one of the young guys had grown about three inches in that time. You see it over time. And I think Paul uses an image of biological growth to say, you will see this. Remember the ad? It may not happen overnight, but it will happen. It is gradual. It is inevitable. It is internally driven. Okay? I have a lemon tree. It's suffering a little bit at the moment. But I don't do anything for it to start producing lemons. It's all over with lemons. It is an inevitable process of being a lemon tree. It will produce lemons unless it's a very sick lemon tree. And it will do it almost irrespective of what I do to it. Okay? It's different. That kind of biological growth, that kind of organic growth is different to a mechanistic growth. How does this pile of bricks grow? It requires energy from outside. You can grow your Christian life like a pile of bricks and it can look significant. But Paul is saying the work of the spirit in your life, it is gradual but it is inevitably welling up from inside. And not only that, it is actually symmetrical. 
Because what Paul says here, he gives us the fruit singular. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. He says the fruit is. And the word is singular. So you can't actually say, I'm a love Christian, but I'm not really a joy Christian. I'm a faith Christian, but not a patience Christian. I'm a gentle Christian, but not a self-controlled Christian. No. The fruit of the Spirit, the singular fruit, will bear all of these things in our lives. It's like a gemstone, and these are just facets of the same gem. And the gem, as Wuffle saw correctly, is Christ-likeness, isn't it? And as we grow... We grow in all of these things, gradually, but inevitably. And that's probably freaked some of you out. Because you're sort of thinking, oh no, am I growing? What about this? What about that? Can I say, Paul tells us, let me remind you, the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle, and the battle itself is a good sign. This fellow here, J.C. Ryle, he's, uh, he was the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool a couple of centuries ago. He said this, captured it brilliantly. A true Christian is not only the one who has peace of conscience, because he knows that Christ has died, she knows that Christ has died, but war within. Not only peace of conscience, but war within. They are known by their warfare as well as by their peace. So, brother, sister, if you are looking at this and thinking, where am I? Are you fighting? Because if you are fighting, if you are battling, even though you may feel that you're not making much headway, the battle is a good sign. But if you're sitting back and you're indulging and you're nurturing the acts of the sinful nature, Hear Paul's warning in verse 21. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, not to gratify the desires of the flesh. How on earth can we do this? Brings us to our last point. Paul says this. He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you're familiar with Galatians, this should draw us back to a fairly significant verse in chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying that the Christian, through faith, is united with Christ in his death through faith, died with Christ. And Paul here is saying in chapter 5 that the Christian, the one who belongs to Christ Jesus, has crucified the, the sinful nature. When did it happen? In a very real sense, it happened when God himself took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself, became a man, submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. Paul writes this 
in Philippians chapter 2. When Christ died, we by faith died with him. Sin's debt paid, sin's power broken. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul is saying that as we put our faith in Christ, the sinful nature is crucified. The battle is won. Does it mean you will never sin? No, it doesn't mean you'll never sin. But it does mean the battle is won. The one who indulges the sinful nature has to ask, have they ever put their trust in Christ? He tells us, walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Is it some kind of super spiritual, airy-fairy kind of thing? No. It's remaining in the victory of Christ. It is working in step with the Spirit to bring the fruit of the Spirit more and more evidently in your life. It is an ongoing life of repentance and faith, turning from sin and turning to Christ day after day after day. It is coming to him and asking in prayer that he might overthrow those strongholds of sin in your life. It is living as heirs, not as slaves. It is worship. It is rejoicing. It is meditating. It is reflecting. I'd like to suggest that evangelical Christians, of which we would probably put most of ourselves in, we're not very good at the whole worship thing. We look at our charismatic brothers and sisters and go, oh, you guys are a bit weird for us. We're Bible people. I think we could learn something from our charismatic brothers and sisters. I think we could learn to worship, not just to hear in our heads, but to let our hearts gaze upon Christ in his word, in his gospel. I want you to imagine when you get home today from church uh, and you go and you look at the top of your, your, your living area, and um, someone has brought the roof of the Sistine Chapel and they've installed it in your family room. Okay, this amazingly intricate Michelangelo masterpiece is now, the original, is, is now in your living room. Would you not want to just lie down on the floor and just gaze at it? And could you imagine ever getting to the point where, you know, guests come in and they're just like, Look at the seal. Oh, <laughs> Michelangelo. <laughs> you know? If you got to that stage, would you, would you say there's something wrong? But we have someone who is more beautiful, more lovely, more amazing. That's just art. We have God himself come to us dying for us, rising again, and through faith in him, offering us adoption. It is in his death that we find freedom. It is in his death that the spirit comes to us and works his fruit in us. It is in his death and the fact that he has served us so that we find our freedom in serving others. Let's go and do that in his name. Amen.